Okay, let's pray together first. Father, I thank you again for the opportunity to be here with your people, your children. I just pray that uh, as we hear your word, look at it uh, now, and then uh, hear Pastor Mike, uh, what you've given him to teach us and preach to us from your word, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you'll give each of us ears to hear. I pray that you will dissolve the hardness in our hearts that would keep us from responding to your word. Father, I thank you that we have your word. It's uh, such a gift and helps us to understand just how great you are help us helps us to understand sometimes that uh, it's hard to understand and I just pray for enlightenment this morning I pray that each of us will know that you the God of creation has spoken to to me to each of us this morning and I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of, or commandment of God and hold to the, to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then you also, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these, things, all these evil things come from within, from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. We continue our journey today through the Gospel of Mark. I hope you have a Bible opened in front of you to Mark chapter 6 or 7. We'll go back a little bit into chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today or your phone or your iPad or whatever, you know, I've been hearing uh, younger pastors that I listen to preaching say, uh, turn, in your, turn in your iPad to, uh, to Mark chapter 7. Uh, you know, it's probably not too distant in the future that those of us carrying physical Bibles uh, uh, may, may go away. How many of you prefer, uh, prefer your iPad or your phone to your Bible? There's some of you, some of you, are, yeah, it's okay. So whatever you will need to do, let's uh, turn to Mark 6 or, or Mark 7. We're continuing our journey, and let me read briefly, going back into chapter 6 and verse 53. It says there that when they, the, the 12, had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. So for those of you that haven't been here the last few weeks, what has happened is Jesus uh, was alone on the land and he sends the 12 across the Sea of uh, Galilee and there's this storm that takes place. And during that storm, they're rowing fiercely late in the night, uh, in the wee hours of the night, and Jesus walks by them. And he's walking on the water and they are terrified and they're afraid and they think that he is a ghost. And what has happened is he walks by them in the sense of, of drawing attention, the reader's attention to this time when, when God had walked by Moses at Sinai. And one of the major themes of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine. And so I'm just kind of resetting the stage for those of you that weren't here last week, they were... Jesus gets in the boat, and they come across, and they land in this area that I've just read, Gennesaret, this area between Tiberias and Capernaum. It's actually not that entire section, but about three miles of that area that was very populated, and this is where the disciples and Jesus land after this night on the sea where Jesus so famously walked on the water. So just setting the stage for chapter 7 here. So let's uh, turn our attention now to chapter 7 and verse 1. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. So this is where they've landed. And then verse 1 of chapter 7, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating 
food is what the NIV has. But if you have the NASB or the King James Version or the New English Translation, it has bread. And that is the better way, I believe, to translate this. Those of you that are are connecting all of these uh, passages and all of these messages, Mark has a theology himself within this Gospel of Mark. This bread is connecting to the events two weeks ago where he fed the 5,000. Remember what I said? What went in the boat with the 12 disciples? The bread. So these 12 basketfuls of leftover bread have been in the boat with disciples as Jesus walks on the water. They finally land, and they, uh, some of his disciples are eating this bread with hands that were unclean, is what the NIV has, or defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the disciples have traveled to this area, and now notice in chapter 7 and verse 1 that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have traveled all the way from Jerusalem to uh, spy out on them, if you will. So I don't know if you can see this or not. You probably can't read everything, but Jerusalem is way down here. It's, it's about a hundred mile journey from Jerusalem to the general area where they are in the Sea of Galilee. I plug this into uh, Google. 32 hours if you want to walk from Jerusalem to this area where they are. So they would have done that over many days. But the reader here should notice that the Pharisees and the scribes are motivated to track Jesus down. And this isn't the first time in Mark's Gospel that we have read about them tracking Jesus down. It's not because they are longing for His teaching. It's not because they are really excited and He's doing these incredible worship services and teaching and feeding all of these thousands of people. If we go back to chapter 3 and verse 22, the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem, said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So the Pharisees, the scribes, they're on a mission to get him. They recognize that he is doing these amazing things, but they are attributing these amazing things that he is doing to demonic power. And so they're, they're, they're on a mission. They're willing to travel a great journey to, to catch him, to trap him, to get him. Mark wants us to see these things in his book. So what, in his gospel, so what they are getting at here, they, they get there, the disciples finally have a chance to eat. I mean, it has been a crazy period for the disciples. As they are exhausted, if we go back several weeks to this ministry that they were doing as they were sent out two by two, and Jesus says, okay, we need some rest, goes to the solitary place, Instead of it being solitary and rest, they have one of the biggest worship services maybe in the history of the world up until that point where there's 10, 12,000 people. They work as waiters and stewards there. Afterward, they immediately get sent out in the boat and, and then they endure this storm. They finally get here. They're enjoying some of the leftover bread. And what are the Pharisees and the scribes concerned about? That they have defiled or unwashed hands. What a bunch of loving pastors 
Their hands are unclean. This is what they are riled about. This is their message. This is what they are, are, are getting after. It's interesting that they don't attack Jesus here. They attack the disciples. Did you notice that? We don't know if Jesus isn't eating or that they've already learned it doesn't do too well. They don't do too well going head on with Jesus. So they're attacking the disciples for eating in an unclean way with, with, with defiled hands. Now, where does this uh, tradition come from? The only thing we have in Scripture that, that probably where this is, this tradition of, of the men, of the elders has come from, perhaps comes from Exodus chapter 30. Let me read it. It says, whenever they, that is the priests, enter the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. So this idea that you have to, to, to wash your hands and to be ceremonially clean, to be pure, to move from uncleanness to cleanness, you have to wash your hands before you eat this bread. This is not found in the scriptures whatsoever. The priests, before they go in, are to do this. But the teachers of the law and this, the, the Pharisees have, have created their own traditions that they are putting upon others and wanting them to obey. We see religious pride here. We see, we see an emphasis on something that should not be emphasized. So I want to draw uh, this conclusion. I've got four points or, uh, out of today's passage. And the first one is that traditions, that is spiritual disciplines or traditions that we have, they can hinder or they can help us to love God, but they are never binding on others. They're not binding. Things that are not from Scripture are not binding. And this is what the Pharisees and what the scribes were so good at developing all of these things and then making them binding on others, piling this on and pointing out, elevating themselves and pushing others down. Now, all traditions, this isn't the point of this passage, but I want to just say that all traditions are not bad. Some traditions help us uh, to love God. Many of us, probably many of you, our family, we kind of have a tradition that before we we eat, we we pray. You have that tradition? You you do that? I mean, I, I don't think there's a verse that tells us you know, before you, before you uh, unwrap that burrito at Taco Tree, that you're somehow defiled if you don't pray before you unwrap that burrito. Is that verse in there? I, I don't think that's in there, but we have that tradition. And so traditions can be a good thing, but traditions can also be a bad thing, particularly if they're not helping us to love God and we are trying to put them upon others. Traditions are not able to make us right or to make us clean before God. Do you know that, church? They're not able to do this. This is not their purpose and function. And yet sometimes we fall into this this paradigm, if you will, of, of doing things in order to get clean, in order to be right, in order to feel holy before God. Many years ago, there was a young man in his 20s. 
He was uh, engaged uh, to be married from a godly family. She was from a, a godly family. It was just one of those things that just, just makes you smile. You know what I'm talking about? And you see people who have, who have brought their, their children up in the ways of the Lord and they've chosen to follow the Lord. And you know, in, in your 20s or in your 30s, um, if, you, um, if you are a virgin, the world looks down and mocks you in that. Am I right? This is kind of the culture of our world. But this particular couple recognized the truth of God's word and by his grace they had um, they, had, they had done things right, and they were looking forward to uh, their wedding day and their wedding night. This particular young man, he, uh, in his 20s, who's engaged, who's done things right, he goes on a, a vacation with his, with his family. And on that vacation, there was a situation where he was in where there was this incredible temptation. He knew that the Lord always provides a way out, that there's no temptation that can overcome us, but he, he was, he was uh, overwhelmed, and he gave in, and he was with a woman while he was on this vacation. And this man is crushed. He is just, uh, he feels incredibly unclean now, and he has this dreaded conversation to have with this fiance, and he's just, he's just broken, and he's He's, he's, he's just about at the, at the end. And he's looking for, for cleanness, if you will. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be just sexual sin, but probably many of us have been in a place where, where, where something that we've done has just overwhelmed us to where we feel defiled, we feel unclean. And we're longing we're longing for, for, for this, this righteousness, for the, this holiness that I perhaps had before, but, but I no longer have. And so this young man is, is trying to, to find his way. And he does a lot of the things that he, that he needed to do. But one of the things that he did is, is he kind of looked at, uh, up to people who had certain spiritual traditions that he looked up to that, that he had never participated in. And he tried to find his, his way out. He tried to find his, his cleanness and, and freedom from this guilt and this conviction that, he, that he's living with now. He tried to find his way out by, by being like them. Now their tradition was, was a good one. The, there, there was this group of, of people in, in the uh, church that he was a part of. And every Friday night they went out uh, to share the gospel in dark places. Uh, in, in, in places where people are partying and people are, are not generally receptive to the gospel, but they, they, went out, they went out and did that. A few of you have, have that, that, that desire and that gift and that leading to do that sort of thing. But most of you probably are like this young man I'm talking about. This was not his thing. Are some of you like that? If I said, hey, Friday night, we're going to go down to, uh, you know, wherever all the people are hanging out Friday night, want you all to come and we're going to go into this bar scene or whatever and we're going to share the gospel. How many of you be eager to come? Sign up. How many people in the parking lot here? All right, there's like five of you, all right? So there's, so there's a few of you that that, uh, that that is a beautiful thing, it's a bold thing, but here's the thing, this, this is a tradition that was going on in this culture and it's something that, that could help some to love God, but he's thinking, you know, if, if this is, for him, this is the most miserable thing I could think of doing. 
And God must want me to do that so that I can feel this uncleanness, if I can be a, get rid of this uncleanness and feel this purity and this righteousness. If I join with these guys, and he, and he did, this is the most miserable thing I could think of doing, and this is what, what, what God must want for me to get out of this feeling of yuck that I have. See, traditions, they can hinder or help us to love God, but they're they're never binding. And he was feeling like, this is what I need to do to find my way out. So what I want to do is we work our way through this passage today. At the very end, we're going to see Jesus kind of leaving us with this idea of, of, of what real uncleanness is. And it doesn't have to do with washing your hands or these ceremonies of righteousness. But Jesus is going to direct us And leave us longing to know how it is that we get clean and how we get righteous. So so I'm going to leave you hanging here because that's kind of what this chapter is doing. And then we'll come to the end about what we are to do when we feel this way. We've all felt like that for a variety of different sins. We've felt just terrible and nasty and guilty. What do we do? So the Pharisees, on the other hand, are just loving to pound people who don't do these things and to just bring these traditions upon them. So let's come back to the text and let's, let's continue moving here. Let's look at verse, um, where am I? Start, starting at verse 5, chapter 7 and verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? That's an important phrase there. This isn't the tradition of the word of God. This isn't scripture. This is the tradition of the elders. They at least know that. Why don't your disciples do this instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Look at Jesus' response in verse 6. He he replies, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people... These people, referring now to the scribes and the Pharisees and those that would lord traditions over others to beat them down. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. These are the people who know the scriptures the best. They have the longest and fanciest worship services. But Jesus says they worship in vain. And their teachings are rules taught by men. Continuing on in verse 8. Jesus says to them, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. Jesus has replaced their word elders with men. This is a negative thing that you have built up. And then he gives some examples. Look at uh, the first one in verse 9. He said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. So here we have the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and we have the consequence in ancient Israel for disobeying the fifth commandment. It's capital crime. So this is what the word of God says, is what Jesus is saying in verse 10. Verse 11, but you, Pharisees and and scribes, say, what if a man says, uh, that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Here's one example. One example, this Corbin tradition. Now if you didn't catch exactly what he's saying there, honoring your father and mother, 
implication here is honoring your father and mother includes caring for them in their last years. And this involves expense, and this involves sacrifice. This may involve the lowering of your standard of living to honor your father and mother and care for them in their last years. But the Pharisees and scribes had developed this tradition that, well, if you've got this money uh, you know, that you could be using to help care for them, if you declare that money that you've got in that account, Corbin, if you declare it dedicated to God, well, then you're no longer under obligation to spend it on your elderly mother and father. You're exempt. It's kind of a way out. Now, whether you end up spending it on that or something else isn't as important. But if you declare it this way, here's the rules that we come up with. This isn't from Scripture. If you declare it this way, then you're exempt from caring from them. Jesus Jesus is coming back really strong at these people who have traveled a great distance to point out that they haven't washed their hands before they ate the leftover bread, possibly haven't eaten in a long time with everything that has been going on. So what we see here is that traditions easily become substitutes for God and His Word. And we need to be careful. It's very easy to read this passage. Uh, Even as I'm preaching it, it's easy for me to distance myself from the Pharisees and from the scribes. But we are very good to substitute traditions for God Himself and for His Word. Go back to just this illustration of praying before, before we eat. This is a good tradition. This is something that our family does. But there might be another brother for whom he recognizes that the Scripture says that we shouldn't stand on the street corner and we shouldn't pray and draw attention to ourselves. So if I was working at a, you know, a secular you know, work and say it, uh, some, some big company down in, in Sacramento with this brother, And he's perhaps made a decision not to pray before he eats in that setting because it just draws attention to himself. It's not really honoring to the Lord. We need to be careful that we don't try to become Pharisees and and expect that person, well, if he's really spiritually mature, he would pray out loud with me even though we're in this work cafeteria. You see what I'm doing? We, We can do the same thing that the Pharisees and the scribes do. So traditions... And, and, and churches and institutions and cultures and small groups and throughout church history, we are so good at coming up with traditions that easily become substitutes for God and for His Word. Behind this passage is, is the teaching that Scripture alone is our infallible authority. It's not traditions of the church or things that we have come up with. It is the word of God. This is the measuring stick. This is what we are to look to. And so it makes it even more surprising what Jesus is about to do here. So let's continue on. We're at verse 14. So he's given examples now of how they've done this. Verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, so we got Pharisees in the crowd, we got scribes, we got the disciples, probably some others there as well. They're on the side, the disciples uh, on the side of the lake. The disciples have just been eating their leftover bread. He says, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him clean. Now, If we can put ourselves in the shoes of a Pharisee or a scribe, they are furious now. They are furious. 
they have come to and asked Jesus a question about how his disciples are eating. They're eating with unclean hands. Jesus has basically said, you are hypocrites. You don't know what you're talking about. You're following the traditions of man. He doesn't answer the question directly why they haven't washed their hands. He, he, he answers it indirectly because this is a false tradition that isn't helping them to, to worship God. But now what he says is Jesus changes the topic. We are no longer talking about cleanliness or uncleanliness of hands and ceremony. But Jesus has shifted from how we eat to what we eat. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. He's talking about food. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. This is incredibly provocative teaching. He goes on. Look at verse 17. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And by parable here, parable can also have the meaning of a puzzling statement. So verses 14 and 15 is a puzzling statement. So the disciples might be thinking this. It sounds like Jesus just said, it doesn't matter what we eat. But we know that the scriptures say it matters very much what we eat and what we don't eat. We can't eat bacon. We can't eat things that slither on the ground. These things are unclean. And we disobey God if we do them. So he can't be saying that. This is why, why they're saying, help us understand this parable. He can't be saying, he, he just slammed the Pharisees and the scribes for not following the word of God. So he, he can't be saying something against the word of God. So they ask him about this parable. Look at verse 18. Jesus' response, are you so dull? <laughs> he asked, don't you see? that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now this is a massive statement. Now you might be thinking, oh, this isn't exactly what I was uh, wanting to hear about today. wasn't really thinking about clean and unclean foods, but this is a massive statement that Jesus is making here. We can go back to that first century and, and have that mindset. This is fundamental to living out the word of God and to be a faithful Jew is to eat and, and to, to not eat unclean foods and to eat only clean foods. And so Jesus is saying, I have the authority to suspend, to, to, go, to go beyond, to suspend the dietary laws of the word of God. And they are no longer binding. This is a massive statement. This is why we call the Hebrew Scriptures the Old Testament. Why we call the the New Testament the New Testament. Jesus is doing a new thing. And I've said this before. I'll probably say it again. Almost every sermon that I preach out of Mark's Gospel could have the central thesis that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And Mark is wanting us to see this incredible authority that he has. And he has just ended the teaching of Moses that says we can't eat certain foods. So commentators have debated a lot. Why why did God have these laws for ancient Israel? 
I don't have time to get into all of the debate, but part of the reason that for ancient Israel, God's people were faithful by avoiding certain foods was they were called out and they were to be distinguished as his people from the nations around them. But God is about to do a new thing. Jesus is here not just to, make mir- to, to do miracles and to cast out demons, but he is coming to die as our sin substitute on the cross and to be raised on the third day and to establish a, a whole new way called the church where the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down. And part of that is doing away with these dietary laws. So you can just imagine how angry the Pharisees and the scribes are. They're upset that they haven't washed their hands. And Jesus here is saying, yeah, the whole food thing that's been going on, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's over. So Jesus, the Son of God, renders biblical dietary laws uh, as no longer binding. This is a massive thing that he's saying. And again, Mark is wanting us to see that even though Jesus is going to eventually, many chapters from now, die a a scandalous death like a criminal on a cross, he has the authority to speak. He is the Word of God. He is the Son of God. Okay. I'm getting kind of excited about this. Are you guys with me today? All right. Glad you're with me. So we're, we're moving along here. So... So he, he explains this, by the way, in verse 19, this is a different Greek word, the word uh, broma for foods. That should be food. I have no idea why a lot of our translations going back to verse 2 translates a different word, the Greek word artos for bread. This is one of the few things that connects this chapter with the previous chapter, that word bread early in chapter 7. But now he switched to a different word. All foods are clean. And I'm thankful as we put uh, bacon in our salads and on our things coming up. Can I get an amen on that? So we're going to be enjoying some of this. All foods are clean. We don't have to eat bacon, but we are free in Christ to eat bacon. And I'm probably going to be doing that uh, in a little while here. Okay, so, so moving on. Last section here, last couple verses. Verses 20 through 23. So he goes on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within... Out of man's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Okay, so there's a temptation here for me to be a Pharisee and to like spend you know, like 30 minutes on how terrible all these different sins are that are in this list that we commit. I don't think we need that. Do we need that? We know that we are sinners. What Jesus is saying here is he is saying that what makes us unclean is not the fact that we have or haven't washed our hands. It's not whether we have or have not participated in a variety of traditions. What makes us unclean is our own personal sins. We could just just look at this first thing in the list in verse 21 evil thoughts. Every single one of us here has had evil thoughts. Every one of us. And so Jesus is declaring all of us, not just those who haven't washed their hands, not just those who do wash their hands before they eat, not those who follow all of the dietary restrictions, not those who don't. All of us are unclean is Jesus' 
message. Final point this morning. Uncleanness is caused neither by lack of washing nor by abstaining from certain foods, but it is caused by personal sin. All of us are unclean. Now we can't end with this bad news. This is bad news. He ends basically saying we are all guilty. We are all unclean. So we have to go elsewhere and we have to remember that Mark's gospel is designed as a unit and it would be a good thing as we go through this, perhaps before we finish Mark's gospel, we're probably going to be in this for a long time, but for you to sit down at some point, I would encourage you at some point to get alone with the Lord and just read through the whole book. Just read through it. It's a short book. It moves quickly. But we have to connect. As Jesus leaves us here, the reader should be going, how do I get clean then? How do I get clean? And we know the answer to this. We've already heard it this morning. We get clean through the gospel. Jesus hasn't died and risen yet, so, we, so he's, we're left hanging here. But let's look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is not from your work. It's not from doing good God-honoring traditions or from legalistic traditions. It is not from ourselves It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We get clean by believing that Jesus died as our sin substitute and he rose again. It is through our faith that we are made clean. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin. God the Father made the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus was made sin on the cross. That we, you and I, as believers, might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so the punishment that we deserve for being unclean was put upon Christ and by faith, by faith alone in what He has done, there is a transfer of Christ's righteousness that externally comes from Him to us. So, last thing I want to say before we finish up is uh, where, how, how does forgiveness come into play here? How does confession come into play here? And I've said this before, but I just want to say this again before, before we finish up. We can sometimes unintentionally teach that when pastors and lead, leaders and teachers, we can sometimes unintentionally teach that when we sin, we fall below some kind of imaginary line. And as believers in Jesus, when we sin, we somehow fall below that line and we're no longer saved. And if we happen to die when we're beneath that imaginary line, if we happen to die, then we're, we're out. This is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that confession is important, that repentance and confession is vital and important to our spiritual lives. But if you and I happen to die between the time whenever our last sin is, including evil thoughts in our minds, we happen to die in between that, uh, that last sin and, and we die and we haven't gotten to confession in between, the grace of God and the blood of Jesus covers us. It, We are not saved by correctly remembering each one of our sins and rightly confessing them, even though we are called to do that. It's kind of like the uh, five-year-old who's a believer and his dad's a believer and his dad's told him, you can't eat from that cookie jar. Don't take a cookie until after dinner. 
And the boy goes and he grabs the cookie and he disobeys his dad and, and he, and he eats, eats the cookie. Now the dad, who's a believer, already has, because he knows the gospel, a heart to forgive his son. That forgiveness is already there toward that boy. Because Jesus has forgiven that father for a million things and we are called to live out the gospel by forgiving others. So that forgiveness is already there toward his son. But how important is it that that little boy goes to his dad and says, Hey dad, I didn't do what, I, I, I did what you told me not to. I, I, I ate from the cookie jar. And, and maybe there's some discipline that comes to that boy, but there's also, boy, I love you son, I'm so glad that you can come and tell me this. I forgive you. Jesus has forgiven me for my sins and I forgive you and we display the gospel in our family that way. So, so the confession is important, but he was already forgiven by his dad. This is what the gospel teaches about all of us. And so we confess our sin, whether it's on Sunday morning or whether it's in private, in order for, not in order for God to forgive us, but because God has forgiven us in Christ. He has already forgiven us if you have been regenerated and made new for all sins, past, present, and future. And our fellowship and our intimacy is restored when we come before Him and confess our sins. Do you see that? Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to love Him in these ways. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for the freedoms that we have in Christ including freedoms to eat what we'd like. Lord, in many ways, it would be easy to have a set of rules like washing our hands before we eat and knowing that we would be clean and right before you if we just simply did those things. But Lord, we know that is so far from the truth of your word and from the message of the gospel and message throughout all of time. Abraham was saved by faith. The disciples are saved by faith. You and I are saved by faith, those of us here today. Lord, help us to believe this gospel. Lord, help us to be discerning about our traditions, whether they are helping us to love you or whether they are perhaps a substitute for your word and for the truths of the gospel. Give us eyes to see that. And Lord, especially help us not to lord it over others, to take traditions that are not from Scripture and to put them upon other people and to beat them down because of that. Lord, free us from that. Lord, we're so thankful for your grace and your mercy and that we are forgiven. We pray now that as we sing, we would sing with with great joy and passion and thankfulness and worship because you've forgiven us and you love us and we are your children. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.